Hey, before we dive in, I need to look into the camera and wish King's Cross Church in Lyons a happy launch Sunday. If you are a guest with us or just back for the first time in a long time, we believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And if there is any one thing this world could use a lot more of right now, it's hope. And so we want to start a lot more churches and we'll do anything we can to uh, help with that. And so when we got an opportunity and chance to help Pastor Caleb and his team start a life-giving church in Lyons, we jumped at the opportunity and because of uh, your all's generosity, we were able to write them a check for over $10,000. And we didn't just send them money. We also sent them people. And I gave him a very specific list. I said, please take these people with you, <laughs> whatever you do. That's not true. Okay. But uh, we sent people, we sent them money. And today is their very first Sunday. So congratulations to them. Good luck. Uh, Congrats. I look forward to everything that will come and the lives that will be changed because of it. That being said, we're closing out our Stranger Things series this morning, which by my calculations, this is actually season three of our program. Uh, we uh, did a Stranger Things series a couple years ago. And we took four Old Testament passages. We think of as weird as probably uh, in there for a reason and helpful. So we were trying to look at some of the bizarre stories in the Bible. We took four Old Testament passages. Then we went and we found four New Testament passages that were weird. Uh, we called that series, straight, uh, uh, it's all Greek to me since the New Testament is written in Greek. But it was the same premise, and so now we're in Stranger Things Season 3, which, if you like the series, there's plenty of material for a Season 4, so maybe we should do that at some time, because we have yet to talk about the prophet Ezekiel and the time that God told him that he needed to lay on his left side for 390 days, and when he got hungry, he should cook his bread over a fire made with human feces. So there's that. Y'all should read your Bible. That's in there. And uh, we have yet to talk about uh, Deuteronomy 21, when God says that we can stone our rebellious children. You're like, no, they're getting stoned. That's why I'm mad. We should. And you're, I'm not. No, I'm telling you that what the Bible says is it once recommended you can throw your millennial child off a high cliff if they are a drunkard or a glutton before you make any vacation plans. You should know, since there's no high cliffs right here, you should know that uh, that was only approved if you were a citizen of Israel. And even then there was a committee that all had to agree. And then even then, the, the nation of Israel had to be a theocracy governed by God. None of that is happening right now. I think you'll have a hard time passing that through legislation in our current world. So needless to say, uh, plenty of chances for us to look at some other weird stuff in the Bible at some point. Uh, today, I thought we would uh, read probably my new life verse uh, this text spoke to me in a powerful way this week. Uh, you'll see what I mean when I read it. I, I feel like on any sympathy cards Laura and I send out from now on under my signature, I'll write Deuteronomy 25, 11 and 12. Here it is. If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand, show her no pity. 
My favorite translation, the King James. When men strive together one with another and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him and putteth forth her hand and take him by the secrets. <laughs> the secrets. By the way, title of my message this morning, she taketh him by the secrets. <laughs> Subtitled and not in a good way. Okay. So <laughs> first of all, listen. You guys have no idea how hard I prayed that no one-handed women would walk into church this morning. I was like, God, please, of all things, just this is very concerning. Uh, I did not need any of you Pharisees looking at her like, what, ha- you know, what happened to you? Uh, what is perhaps more troubling is that uh, I understand the rule because like, yeah, if you're winning the fight, you don't want somebody jumping into the fight. And like, can you imagine watching a UFC bout and a guy's about to get choked out and his wife jumps the cage and you're like, what is this all about? This is a turn that I did not see coming. Uh, but then again, I think you also must consider if you're the one getting beat up, would this be so bad? Like if your wife came in to rescue, I don't know, particularly since you'll notice that the problem is not that she got into the fight, is how she got into the fight. Evidently, God really cares about the rules of Fight Club. And we all know the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. So maybe we should just dismiss, go eat some fried food, call it a day. Uh, But even if we don't talk about it, it kind of causes me to wonder, was this such a problem that God himself had to step in and address it and be sure to record it in his book for all of time? Like, was he up in heaven looking down like, man, not again. Ladies, are you kidding me with this? We're, uh, we're going to start chopping off hands. Like, how many times? Spirit, start chopping off hands, okay? Instruct the men to make the guillotine. Uh, I don't know how your brain works, but this completely, radically changed my view of he, uh, Israelite women in the Bible. I used to picture them like the Mennonite gals who cooked my meals in grade school and they were just soft-spoken and sweet and small and they had the thing. I just thought Hebrew women were all that way. But apparently the, the Hebrews are way more Scandinavian than I assumed. These are big old Viking gals. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some Helgas and Olgas and like what in the world? It makes sense considering way back in Exodus 1 when Pharaoh got mad at the midwives because they weren't uh, killing the baby boys like they were supposed to. And he calls them in and they say, well, uh, these Hebrew women are very vigorous and give birth before we can get there. And Pharaoh didn't argue. He's like, yeah, I could see that. I've met, <laughs> met some of these gals myself. And so he has to try and recruit all the Egyptian men to do the killing instead. So why is this in the Bible? What in the world could this even do for us in 2020? Uh, If you're taking notes, you might jot this down. The physical often affects the spiritual. The physical often affects the spiritual. See, the reason God had to concern himself with this particular incident is because the very first command that God gives to Adam and Eve after he unites them in marriage in the garden was to be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it, proliferate the human species on earth, thereby ensuring its future. When you know that, it would seem as though 
this law was meant to protect the future of God's people and protect the future of God's image as it is displayed in all people throughout the world. Because if a man couldn't tell his wife his secrets, right? Y'all understand how that works. I need to get my pop-up book. You look at me kind of confused, okay? Uh, So uh, the law uh, is a deterrent showing the seriousness uh, that God has with regards to life being sacred. Matter of fact, many of the weird laws that we read in the Old Testament all stem from this idea of keeping life safe. And even after the world is destroyed in a flood, what's the first command God gives Noah and his sons? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Because uh, your life is holy and your physical life often will affect your spiritual life. It's why 1 Corinthians 6.12 reads, You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? That is to say, God cares about how you live physically because it will often affect you spiritually. Which, look, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that's true, right? Science is constantly discovering what God already knew. And God, from the beginning of time, knew that stress is bad for you. He knew that your diet is good or bad for you, depending. Getting the right amount of sleep is very important. You know, how you treat your body is a big deal. And God knows that not only does your physical affect your spiritual, but sometimes your spiritual can affect your emotional, and your emotional will affect your physical. It's all very cyclical. It all works together very cohesively. In 2012, a Harvard researcher, after conducting a huge peer review study, wrote about optimism specifically. Listen to this. Factors such as optimism, life satisfaction, and happiness are all associated with reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, regardless of a person's age, socioeconomic status, smoking status, or body weight. Additionally, the most optimistic individuals when compared to their less optimistic counterparts had approximately 50% less risk of an initial cardiovascular event. See what I'm saying? When you choose to be happy, it often affects your health. Choosing optimism keeps you in good health, even if you're treating your body badly in other ways. Perhaps the reason God has decided to concern himself with this type of controversy is not just because he's trying to protect the future of the human species, but also because he's trying to protect your spirit from being corrupted by this pessimistic side of you that can so quickly fall into depression. Have you read Genesis 4-6? When God's talking to Cain and Abel, and he says to Cain specifically, why are you so angry? How come your face is so downcast? Why are you so depressed? If you do what is right, Will you not be accepted? 
But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, your physical decisions are often affecting your spiritual disposition. Now, am I saying that you can choose your way out of mental uh, illness and depression? No, absolutely not. But I am saying that in seasons of the year like this, when it's gray and dark and dreary, and you often find yourself in a situation where it's just like, nah, a lot of that can be uh, chosen by a different attitude and choosing optimism. And what you put in your body and how you treat your body, God cares, <coughs> excuse me, God cares about that because God is for your joy. And he knows your physical body will often affect your spiritual health. Uh, let's talk about God's law. This was recorded for us as a civil law. There's actually a number of things, but jot this down first. God's law was meant for God's people. God's law was meant for God's people. So when you study the Old Testament specifically and the laws that are transcribed there for us by Moses, it's often you can break them up into four, uh, well, really three specific categories. And then as we look at the New Testament, there's another category. But the first one is the moral law, the moral law. These are the covenants given by God for all time. Old Testament, New Testament, us now, doesn't matter. These are the moral commands that God has given. Things like the Ten Commandments, uh, the covenant of marriage, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, the great commandment, all of these things are the moral law. They are valid for us even still today. However, there is also the civil or political law. These are laws that God gave the nation of Israel. They were to adhere to them as long as they were a nation governed by God and his kings. <laughs> <clears throat> and some of these laws might sound extreme to us, but in our nation's history, we've had some rather ridiculous laws as well. For example, did you know that in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, it is illegal to feed alcoholic beverages to a moose? Uh, it, I, it causes you to wonder how many drunk moose were walking around town before somebody put their foot down. And we're like, we can't have this anymore. In San Francisco, it is illegal to wipe your car with used underwear. Can you imagine being the dispatcher getting that call? 911, what's your emergency? Emergency is right. You're never going to believe this. My neighbor, Bill, wiping his car with used underwear. How do you know they're used, sir? Uh, we'll send someone right over. You know what I'm talking about? In South Bend, Indiana, a law that I'm still very much in favor of says it is illegal for monkeys to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> totally support that. I am in favor of no smoking of the cigarettes for the monkeys. Women, did you know it is illegal to fart in your car? As part of the Distracted Drivers Act of 2004, the language states you cannot fard, F-A-R-D, uh, which means to put on and apply makeup you cannot fart in your car. Some of you are like, oh, thank goodness. I thought misunderstood what you said. 
just doing the other thing the whole way here. I'm (laughs) so glad you clarified that. Uh, My point is, you should not be too quick to judge civil law. We have had some weird ones in our history. Clearly, there's some weird ones in uh, the nation of Israel's history as well. Now, God also institutes ceremonial laws. We got the moral law, the political civil law, and ceremonial laws. These are the laws that governed how you are to worship the God of uh, Israel. So, like, what to sacrifice, when to sacrifice, how to sacrifice, why do you sacrifice, who can be a priest, who can go into the temple, Uh, how should the temple look. All of these things are uh, ceremonial laws that God said, if you're going to worship me, here's how it needs to take place. So, when you hear people talk about, well, you can't really believe that. It's an Old Testament thing. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. That's partially true. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant, these ceremonial laws. We don't need these anymore because we now have access to God. Uh, we can come to Him however we see fit. We see that. Uh, we talked about that last week as we saw the temple torn into. Jesus uh, allows us access to God. But uh, so there's the moral law that we should be following still. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. Israel's not a nation, so we don't have to worry about those. But number four, there's also Christian values. Christian values are different than God's law. They are good advice, no matter what time period you're living in, but they are not necessarily commands for us today. Proverbs is a perfect example of Christian values. There's good advice in there, but it's not necessarily a law given by God saying you have to do this, and if you do this, this is what is going to happen. Uh, Tithing would be a good example of that. Do I believe you should tithe? Do I believe the Bible teaches you should tithe? Yes. Is it a law given to us by God? No, it is a Christian value that says you should give uh, 10%, the first 10% back to God, and I believe God blesses Uh, that if you follow that value. Uh, Good to abide by, but not necessarily a command. Here's how you can write it down. What's off limits for you isn't necessarily God's law for all. What's off limits for you isn't necessarily God's law for all. So we have God's law that's meant for God's people, but if you're not one of God's people, we as God's people cannot impose our values, our command, our laws on to everyone. What we have here is a civil law given to the nation of Israel. I would like to think morality would prohibit women from doing this in today's world. However, there's nothing on the books that would say we have to chop off hands if this would happen. However, as Christians, we should also understand that there are values for us that we should follow that are not necessarily uh, values we need to uh, push on to others. Jesus never once, never once blamed pagans for acting like pagans. In fact, it was the pagans, the drunks, the hookers, the tax collectors who were so in love with Jesus that they consistently changed their lives uh, once they saw what Jesus was actually telling them to do. He loved them too much to allow them to stay where they were. 
you've maybe heard somebody say, it's okay to not be okay, it's just not okay to stay there. That's the message of the New Testament. Because of Jesus, he loves you so much, he's not going to allow you to stay back here in this life. He wants you to be born again and changed and renewed into his image. And what I think we need to spend a little bit of time here chatting about is how we as Christians need to become painfully aware of how we're obscuring God from those who need to connect with him most. Because in my experience, it's a lot of so-called followers of Jesus who act like God's law is supposed to apply to everyone, including non-Christians, when it doesn't. Now, would they be better people if they did follow it? Absolutely, yes. But when we try and shove our values down the throats of other people, are we any better than the Pharisees who are constantly being berated by Jesus? I'll give you an example of how this plays itself out. In the Old Testament, there's a specific law given by God uh, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, that means distinct, set apart. Remember the Sabbath, keep it set apart. You worked hard six days out of the week. Uh, on the seventh, the Sabbath, you rest. God rested on the Sabbath. We should rest on the Sabbath. For the Jewish people, that was on Saturday. Now, uh, Pharisees come along and say, well, we need to establish what is work. We need to define. We don't want to accidentally work on the Sabbath and thereby break a command of God. And so uh, recorded for us in the Talmud is a lot of how the Pharisees defined work, how far you could walk and uh, how many pounds you could lift and other things that you could do on the Sabbath that you're not allowed <clears throat> or, or you're not allowed to do. Uh, in more modern times, some rabbis came along and said, all ripping is prohibited on the Sabbath. And so on Friday night, you had to pre-rip your toilet paper if you wanted toilet. That was the, I'm dead serious on that. Like that's an exciting, you're watching Netflix and pre-ripping the toilet paper is what the Jews would have to do uh, so that they could use it on the Sabbath. And then Jesus comes along. He's like, are you guys serious with this? Like this is the most absurd thing. This is not the intent of the law. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for you to help you, to give you joy, not you for the Sabbath. Why are you trying to work all this stuff in? And the Pharisees are like, how dare you talk to us like that? And Jesus knows something that we should all know, that following God is very personal, but it was never intended to be private because we need people in our lives to help us follow Jesus and was off limits for you might not be off limits for them. It's very much a dance that we do with God and Jesus, okay? Maybe this will help. To the best of my knowledge, I uh, am a father to three kids, okay? <clears throat> my son, when he was little, he used to call me Dan, and so I'm not sure where he fits in the thing. So I for sure have two daughters. Now, what I can tell you about all three kids uh, is that we have house rules that are the same for all of them. The expectation, if you're uh, living in this house, you're going to keep your room clean. You're going to brush your teeth. You're going to go to bed when mom and dad say. You're going to obey. If you deliberately disobey, there's consequences for that. House rules, the same for all the children. Now, I also relate to each child differently. My son and I will play video games. Fortnite, 
Uh, then we'll go outside and play football, we basketball, whatever. Uh, Lana, she likes to cook. She likes to work in the garden. So we relate to each other in that way, very differently than how Layton and I relate to one another. Lenny, she's the youngest. She's three. She's a monster. You can't relate to her. In any way. She's just out of control all the time. So, uh, you know, anyway. Uh, so depending how, how uh, their personality, I as their dad, relate to them, a specific way. Well, the same thing is true for you spiritually with how you relate to God. God recorded for us his house rules that he's made very clear for us in the, uh, his manual. But then he also, depending on how you relate to him, has some values and expectations, how you can connect with him and how you can call him dad. And it's going to be different than how maybe I call him dad. So one of my favorite Descriptions of Christianity is recorded for us in Matthew 13, 44, when uh, Jesus is asked about the kingdom of, of God. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field. In other words, when a person has a true encounter with God, the treasure, they'll do anything to possess it. And anything that stands in the way of that possession of the treasure, uh, in this case, possessions, it is joyfully set aside. So the things that God might be asking you to set aside are different than the things that God might be asking me to set aside. And in both cases, anything that he asks us to set aside is done for our joy. And ultimately, it's the end result that matters, not the path we took to get there. So if something produces a great walk for you, that's a great path to take. And if it's not, it's probably a waste of time, even if a lot of other people highly recommend it. Fact is, what works for me might be worthless or even harmful for you. And whenever we project what works for us onto other people, we have the potential to create frustration and legalism because if it worked for me and I'm awesome, then it should work for you and you should be awesome too. And furthermore, when we let others project their stuff onto us, we frequently end up with unfounded guilt. And it's like, well, I, I can't pray like them. And that must be why my uh, relationship with God is being affected because I'm not doing what they're doing and they're so awesome. And neither is helpful when considering uh, how we produce this great relationship with God. So uh, one of the, the things that people are always like, oh, you got to pray and you got to read your Bible. Do I think you should do those things every single day? Yes, but it doesn't mean you have to do it the way I do it. And it doesn't mean you have to do it how other people do it. And it doesn't mean, listen to me now, that uh, somehow the Bible is the magical uh, connection between you and God. Because what did people do before there was a Bible? What did they do before there was the printing press? Did you know there's a lot of people in the world who don't even have the Bible in their native language? Did you know there's a lot of people in the world today who can't even read? Is there no hope for them in connecting with God? Of course there is. God will reveal himself to them in a way that's relatable for them. Totally believe that. 
And you'll notice that according to Jesus' own example, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out when you have a treasure. Probably why Jesus will go on to say that uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. Uh, little children find treasure in about anything. Just the other day, uh, Lenny came up with a rock, and it was her treasure. It's a rock, but that's what it is. And anyone who's ever been around a children's Sunday school class knows that those kids have some pretty jacked up theologies. <laughs> like two nights ago, Lana prayed that she would, that Jesus would make her good, but not too good. <laughs> what? What does that even mean? How did you get that? So maybe a sound theology isn't even the first step in pleasing God. But it's a result of knowing God as dad and the house rules that God has given and the values that God has given. You can write it down like this. The Bible isn't a list of requirements. It's a list of results that occur after responding to God's love. The love that put Jesus on the cross, the love that said, you're worth it to me. I'm going to make a way for you to live in God's presence forever. It's not that you're required to do any of those things. You can't earn any of that. It's a result of responding. God, uh, following God is a response. And if you don't experience God as a treasure, then obedience is going to feel forced and unnatural. Christianity is not a process in which we earn love. It's a process in which we reflect love. Because we understand what Jesus first did for us. That while we were yet sinners, trying to live life our own way, he died for us. That's why all the sinners love to be around Jesus. Because they weren't trying to earn anything. And yet the Pharisees were. So here's how I think most people process their lives. Most people like uh, to think of life as the basket of life. You've been called a basket case before. It's because your basket of life is all jacked up. But we like to put everything in our little basket of life. And we have our family, and we have our jobs, and we have things like hobbies and sports and everything, our fantasy football team. We've got to get that all in our basket of life. And we try and uh, segment our lives and get everything in our little basket. And then somebody will come along and say, well, your priorities are messed up. That's why your life doesn't look how the way you want it to look, because you've got to get your priorities right. Anybody heard that before? What's the first priority that you're supposed to have in life? God. You got to have God number one in your life. And so if you'll just get God into your life, you put him first, get your family second, your job third, and then however else you want to uh, work life after that, then this basket of life will make sense. Life will make sense if you just have the God first life. Now, here's the problem with that. What does that even mean? Have you ever stopped to consider that? What does this God-first life even look like? Like, is it in terms of order, God-first life? So am I supposed to structure my day as such that I start my day with God and prayer and Bible study? And if that's the case, how much time do I have to spend before I'm free to go on to the next thing? Like, is there a minimum? If I'm super busy, can I kind of rush through that? I mean, I gave him the first 
And, uh, well, maybe it's not first in order. Maybe it's in terms of quality. So in terms of quality, I give God the best of my time and the best portion of my energy. Except I'm a boss, and I'm kind of paying my employees to give me the best portion of their time and energy, right? And your boss is paying you to give him the best portion or her the best portion of your time and energy. So maybe it's not in terms of quality. Maybe it's a value thing. Maybe putting God first is uh, when I'm faced with options, I have to choose God and his agenda first. But then again, well, how far does that go? Because am I supposed to be at church every single week that the doors are open and in the middle of a pandemic and I'm sick, do I go infect everybody else so they all become sick? And what are you supposed to do with that? And I don't think I'm alone in wondering, well, what are the actual requirements that I'm supposed to keep? And it's why we have 613 commands in the Old Testament because we've got to start defining everything and how do we define a good a God-first life? So here's my encouragement. This week, stop putting God first, okay? Now, before you think I've lost my salvation, stop, <laughs> stop putting God first and start putting him in the center. See, instead of thinking uh, about your life in terms of a basket, instead of segmenting your life, start thinking about your life in terms of a wheel, and God is in the center of our lives. And every one of these spokes is now those things, my family, uh, my job, my hobbies, when I go play pickleball, when I go watch the Chiefs destroy the Broncos this afternoon. And when, um, you know, uh, whatever it is that you're into, all of a sudden these spokes are, I'm going to bring God with me through every portion of my life. It's why the Apostle Paul writes these words in Colossians, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And when we're faced with these boundaries and obstacles of life, when our life is a wheel, we'll roll over all of those things when God is the one powering the center of our wheel. Whatever you do, put God in the center and he's going to affect every other area of your life. And so if you're a morning person, get up in the morning, read your Bible. If you're not, do it when you do it. And uh, however that needs to look for you, if you're a devotional person, if you're, a, you know, read through the Bible in a year or whatever, uh, take the pressure off you. And when God's at the center, he's going to reflect this treasure that you found. Your joy is going to be contagious. When you're optimistic about life, you don't have to worry about making sure the neighbor comes over for supper so you can talk to them about Jesus. No, they're going to see that stuff in your life and they're going to be like, how come your life is so different? How come you're happy all the time? And God's going to do what only God can do and he's going to change their lives. And if you feel compelled to ask some of those questions, well, then of course do that. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through you. But in other times, listen to that voice inside of you. People will notice. This is the whole point of Jesus coming. What's John 10, 10 say? Okay, so you might have life. Have it to the full. It's not about keeping every single command. 
is about the reflection of the treasure that you found, the joy in your heart. Can I hear a better amen, somebody? Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for caring so much about us and our image bearing and reflecting that you gave us rules and commands to follow. You care about what our lives look like. And so we appreciate the fact that we can take some of the pressure off ourselves and know that it has nothing to do with the laws that we follow and everything to do with Jesus because of his perfect life. We don't have to live perfectly. So God, as we think through this, as we try and process how this needs to look in our lives, I'm just asking you to do again what only you can do and send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way and speak to our hearts and convict us where we need convicting. And God might be telling you uh, that, hey, this needs to get eliminated from your life. This ain't a sin for everybody, but it's a sin for you. And God might be telling you, hey, this is something that you need to do. This is good. As James tells us, he knows the good and doesn't do it. It's a sin for him. And so you need to start thinking about these areas of your life. God, do what you promised to do and help us analyze our lives. Give us this joy you've promised. God, you are the treasure. You're a good dad. So what you tell us no to, we know you're doing it for our good. And God, if there's anybody here this morning who has yet to accept this free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus, if anybody's watching online, again, God, we believe you are with them right where they are. Please speak to their hearts. Help them confess this sin that's in their lives. Father, forgive them. Help them believe in your son. Make them new. We know that you did not come, Jesus, to make bad people good. You came to make dead people live. Give us life. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.